his third great missionary journey. Where did he go and what did he do? What was important to the apostle as he undertook a great adventure to visit the churches that he planted? Join us once again as we open up the book of Acts to set sail with Paul and his companions. Welcome to the Shalom Y'all Ministries Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adam Keim, along with Dr. Daniel McCabe. Daniel, how are you, my friend? Well, I'm really excited about this last week. We got to celebrate not only our nation's birthday, but my wife's birthday. Uh Wonderful. I'm really, really blessed. Um, My wife and I have been married, I guess, now 20 years and she is just a tremendous gift to me. So it was a fun week to be able to celebrate her birthday in the country and just spend some time with the family. And we just had a, a nice relaxing week, I guess I could say. Very good. Yeah, I have some important birthdays this week, the 4th of July week as well. My second daughter, Eliana, turned nine on the 3rd, and my dad's birthday is on July 4th. Oh, my. Okay. Yeah, so it's been a it's been quite a week here for both of us. Sounds like it. Well, we here at Shalom Y'all trust that a walk through the land deepens your walk with the Lord. And our mission is to teach and encourage those who love the Bible, the land of the Bible, and the people of the land. Have you ever dreamed about visiting the land of Israel yourself? Reach out to us for more information on how your group can experience the promised land firsthand. Now, before we delve into the main topic each week, we first start with brief looks into whatever other matters that pop into our minds that we hope you will find interesting and edifying as well. Daniel, what do you have for us today? Adam, I know that you just recently started a new series in the book of Mark for your regular Saturday postings on our ministry's Facebook page. Is Mark a a particular love of yours or... You're just wanting to to go through the account of Jesus, and you just chose that one. All of the above. All <laughs> yes. of the above. I've always loved the Gospel of Mark. Um, you know, for some reason, I, I I just love reading through it time and again, and I liked teaching through it in Greek class when I taught Greek. It was simpler Greek for beginning students to kind of you know grapple with, and we would just kind of walk through the first few chapters of the Gospel. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've just I've always liked it. Okay. Well, I think we both have been poking around then in the book of Mark. I found myself recently here in Mark chapter 15, and I was looking at verse 1, and here's how it reads. It says, Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Of course, their plan was to convince Pilate, their Roman governor, who alone could authorize capital punishment, that Jesus deserved that fate, that Jesus deserved to die. Well, tucked away quietly in the middle of that verse, you'll find the word counsel. Let me read it again. It says, the chief priests held consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. In the Greek language of the New Testament, it's the word Sanhedrin, which is a governing assembly that has historically served as both a Senate and a Supreme Court, if you will, on behalf of the Jewish people. The word Sanhedrin literally means to sit 
together for 71 rabbis met daily in the temple in Jesus's day and for the next 400 years in various locations throughout the land of Israel in order to provide spiritual leadership for the Jewish people. Now, Roman emperors of the late 4th and early 5th century unleashed a violent persecution against the leaders of the Sanhedrin, which predictably forced the council to disband. But there have been since then several attempts, maybe even many attempts over the years, to revive the Sanhedrin. Even one I read about by Napoleon Bonaparte in 1806. That guy really got around. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I I was startled to read that. But then the latest attempt in 2004 was by the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. They're trying to revive again the Sanhedrin. And this is a group that's really very passionate in their efforts to do so. They're not messing around. They're very serious. They even have produced blueprints and a computer computer animation of their plans for the construction of a building to house the council members. And you can find the video or their video on the Temple Institute's YouTube channel under their quote, Holy Temple Building Plans playlist. Now there's a lot more I could say about their plans for reviving the Sanhedrin in particular or the plans they have for rebuilding a third temple in general, but I'll leave it there for now. But that's a really unusual modern twist on a very classic Old Testament, excuse me, New Testament story related to the Sanhedrin. Mm -hmm. Well, Daniel, you know that I love the history of Israel uh, just in general, but I, I really like reading about their monarchical period, you know, the books of the the Samuels, Kings, and Chronicles are among my favorites to revisit time and again. And for my mini topic this week, let's consider when the kingdom of Israel split from a united monarchy under Saul, David, and Solomon to the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah, 10 tribes to the north and Judah to the south, along with Benjamin and well, to a degree Simeon, because that tribe was kind of in the midst of Judah. And you can read about this division in 1 Kings 12 and 2 Chronicles 10. So if you're familiar with the story, you'll remember the people were gathered at the city of Shechem to anoint Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the new king. And that was a fitting place, considering the importance that Shechem carried in Israel's history up to that point. Now, a former servant of Solomon, Jeroboam, from the tribe of Ephraim, returned from hiding in Egypt and he led the people in requesting Rehoboam to gain some relief from Solomon's previous hard ways. So Rehoboam requested three days to think it over. He consulted some of the older advisors, and they wisely suggested that Rehoboam grant the people's request, that, that they would follow him forever if he did. Now, Rehoboam, on the other hand, rejected their counsel and Instead, listen to the younger generation of advisors, those who grew up with him. Now, our older listeners, you can define for yourselves if you're in that group. Well, I'll, will... I'll, I'll be in that group, Adam. Okay, just well then, that clear. Daniel <laughs> will already know how, how, how this might turn out. The young guns advise Rehoboam to be harsh with the people and show how strong he really is. You know, you know, that must have been the reasoning behind their words, because it's kind of hard to figure out the wisdom of their plan. 
Uh, so Rehoboam responds to the people with, with an intriguing statement. He said to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Now, the reference to scorpions was it was probably a certain type of whip that had sharp pieces of metal attached to the lashes rather than regular whips that Solomon's taskmasters used. Now, if this was Rehoboam's way of showing his toughness, it, it really backfired on him. <laughs> Apparently, he did not heed his own father's wisdom in Proverbs 15.1 that says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Or an old bit of insight adapted by Benjamin Franklin that says, You can attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. Adam, I know we've both pastored in the past. Um, did you ever consider this strategy for your congregation? Rehoboam's? Yeah. Now, maybe I should have tried that a time or two and see how it would have worked. Oh, no. <laughs> no, yeah, it doesn't it seem to be really... a lot of wisdom in this, does there? It, uh, no, there doesn't. And yes, um, I I have not tried Rehoboam's strategy and I, I don't plan on doing that <laughs> anyway. But yeah, so it it he didn't heed his father's wisdom or, you know, Benjamin Franklin's. Um, the northern tribes, of course, take this threat none too kindly, and they say, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. That is, they break away from the house of David and make Jeroboam their own king. Rehoboam later planned to wage war to get those tribes back under his kingship, but God dissuaded him by stating through the prophet Shemaiah, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home for this thing is from me. Now to Rehoboam's credit here, he listened that time. But even something that we would consider bad, the fracturing of the kingdom of Israel, was part of God's sovereign plan. And he did this because the people under Solomon started to worship foreign gods, something that David would never have allowed. God's discipline is always perfect and effective, achieving his greater purposes. Now, were some godly people in Israel caught up in this punishment? Yes, but as Romans 8.28 reminds us, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So even this great fracturing of the kingdoms, of course, was according to God's plan. And he promised it to Jeroboam that he would become king in the north. And, and so he all he worked all things together for ultimate good. And as we know, as he works in history, we can thank him for how he has much greater vision than we do about how things should work together. Daniel, what is this week's trivia question? Well, let's talk about music today, okay? So, Adam, do you have a favorite genre of music or even a favorite song or two? I like to kind of put classical music on in the background, you know, when I'm at work or something. And so I'd like just kind of, that's easier listening, but I like to, I'm not an expert, but I like to kind of learn about the composers and the different thought that went into different kinds of music. I'm, I, I am, not musically inclined whatsoever, but, but I like classical music, I, I guess. Okay. Well, that's a good choice. I think that's uh, 
a great study music, right? You can just play that in the background yeah. and you can study God's word or even read a book. I think that's uh, one of the best uh, ways to enjoy music and study at the same time. So um, you like patriotic music or any other kind of music? Yeah, patriotic. It, it's okay. I, I love Christmas music, Christmas you know, the music. traditional okay. Christmas hymns and stuff. So mm-hmm. classical music, Christmas music. I like playing Handel's Messiah at Christmas time. Ah, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got a I've got a question for you about some songs, some um, American songs. So, which of the following songs that are all well known titles to us? Which of the following songs does not does not have a Jewish songwriter or composer? Oh, wow! You got it. Okay. All right. Only one. The rest of them all have Jewish songwriters or composers. I'm going to list the songs from their earliest date of recording to their latest date. So that way I can just create a, a random list here and some uh, random for guesses, but ordered here by their dates. So the first one is Take Me Out to the Ball Game in 1908. Um, second or B would be. God Bless America, 1939. C is Over the Rainbow, also in 1939. D, here comes your Christmas music, White Christmas, 1942. And then E, This Land is Your Land, 1944. So which one does not have a Jewish songwriter or composer? Here they are again. A, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. B, God Bless America, C, Over the Rainbow, D, White Christmas, or E, This Land is Your Land. Give that some thought, and we'll have the answer for you later in the podcast. In previous podcast episodes, we covered Paul's first and second missionary journeys In those adventures, the Apostle went through Asia Minor and established many churches and then revisited them to continue building them up. On his third journey, he would go through those regions again. After all, Paul was not one to just leave these fledgling churches on their own without good nurturing and care. So the third journey lists many different places, but is mostly concerned with uh, the city of Ephesus, or at least you know, most of the content is surrounding things that happened there in Ephesus on the western shore of the modern country of Turkey. The narrative begins with an introduction to a man named Apollos. Apollos. Now, here is an interesting person. So Acts 18, 24 to 25 states, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So Priscilla and Aquila actually took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately to him. Now, he must have received their instruction humbly because verses 27 through 28 say that when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he was powerfully, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. You know, I actually think that 
Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, I admit that I don't have any evidence for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just like that theory. And I do think it accords with what we know about Apollos. Uh, the purpose and nature of the book of Hebrews makes sense with Apollos's skill set and interest to demonstrate to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And as I mentioned in our previous podcast episode, the Greek writing style of Hebrews differs from other New Testament authors. Maybe it was Apollos's writing style or someone else's entirely. <laughs> that itself isn't the smoking gun. There are still reasons why the traditional view of Perhaps Pauline authorship could be true, but we will probably never know for sure until we're in glory. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who wrote it. The Holy Spirit inspired it. At any rate, when, when Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 1.12 that there were factions of those who followed Paul or Apollos or Peter, he didn't blame Apollos or Peter, just that there were factions. Now, the fault lied with the people that were divided, not the heroes over whom they were divided. In fact, one of those factions listed was those who followed Christ. And of course, that's who everyone should follow. Now, Paul spent about three years in Ephesus on this third missionary journey. A lot happened there, but but only a few tales were highlighted in Acts. He encountered some disciples of John the Baptist, Now, Paul caught them up to speed about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, similar to what Priscilla and Aquila did with Apollos. And they received the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues and prophesying. Paul also went from evangelizing in the synagogue to spending a couple of years preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, which was a lecture hall that was apparently open to traveling teachers. One Greek manuscript mentions that The hall was open from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. when people would have their midday meal and afternoon siesta of sorts. I would love to have attended one of Paul's classes there, relaxing with a glass of Ephesian lemonade and, and learning from the master theologian himself. That would have been amazing. God performed many miracles through Paul in Ephesus. So much so that even the clothes that touched his skin were brought to sick and demon-possessed people, and they were healed. It's fascinating that God chose to work that way in that city. And remember, the book of Acts records the things that God did in a unique way in a unique time during the critical period of the church's infancy. I encourage our listeners to read for themselves more about how God worked in Ephesus during this time. From the sons of Sceva, a rather comical but serious instance of those who tried to act above their calling, to the revival, riot, and aftermath about the city's reverence of the false goddess Artemis, and about Paul's charge to the Ephesian elders to care for the church after he would be gone. I trust it will give you renewed context and appreciation the next time you read the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Well, Adam, for today's podcast on Paul's third missionary journey, starting in Acts 18, 23 or so, I decided to go more micro than macro. Luke's log of Paul's travels places him in at least five different cities. You mentioned Ephesus, and there's also Troas, Miletus, Tyre, and Caesarea. And so I decided I'd share some fun facts and faith lessons from each of those five cities. 
So first, Apollos um, is mentioned in the city of Ephesus. So we'll start there. You did touch on him, and I want to just come at him with a little bit different angle. Uh, he was a Jewish man who had accepted Jesus as the true Messiah and who had traveled from his home in Egypt across the Mediterranean Sea to Ephesus to share his faith. Luke describes Apollos, as we saw earlier, and as I'll just emphasize again, he describes him as an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures in verse 24, and as fervent in spirit, verse 25, a word that means to boil, by the way. In other words, somebody had told Apollos about Jesus, and Apollos felt compelled to do the same. He literally boiled over with eagerness to share what he had learned. Well, Luke next assures us that what Apollos shared with the Ephesians was accurate, a Greek word from which we get acrobat, one who walks carefully. And yet, verse 25 tells us that Apollos, quote, knew only the baptism of John, end quote. So in other words, Apollos had an incomplete knowledge of all that it meant to be a believer in Jesus which clearly limited what he could teach. But thankfully, a couple named Aquila and Priscilla, as we saw again earlier, befriended Apollos, took him aside, taught him what he lacked. But here's my final point from all of this. What I want to tell you is this. Share what you know about Jesus. No one knows everything about the Bible. But that's no excuse to say nothing Maybe you haven't been to seminary or Bible college, okay? You know, maybe you're a new Christian and there's a, a lot you haven't learned yet, but you can share what you do know. Be accurate with what you share, of course. And admittedly, each one of us has plenty of things still to learn, but don't focus on what you don't know. In fact, I find that so many people who feel or perhaps seem to think that there's nothing that they could possibly share, they'll share something that I find incredibly insightful. So share what you do know about the scriptures and about your relationship with God. And here's my promise to you. Really, it's from scripture that God, just as he did with Apollos, God will use you. Mm, amen. Second, Troas, the second city I wanted to mention, Acts 20, verse 7, begins the account of Paul and Troas with these words. He writes, Luke writes, Now on the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. Now, Troas is the city that's more commonly associated with Eutychus. Do you remember the story of Eutychus? So he's um, he's sitting he's sitting in a hot room in Troas, after a long day, the Bible said there's lots of lamps burning, so clearly it's hot. And, and as the clock nears midnight, Eutychus falls asleep and tumbles from the third story window where he's been sitting while listening to Paul preach. The story does end well if it's a new one for you, so don't worry. Um, but it's Troas. That's This is the story of Eutychus and Troas. But I don't really want to focus so much on him, although I wanted to kind of connect you to the, the place which again, Troas, Luke notes again in verse 7 that the Christians here worshipped together on Sunday, not Saturday. And I just mm. found it interesting, right? That yeah. Scripture points that out. So note, you can also turn over to 1 Corinthians 16.2, and you can note too there that Paul instructs Christians to set aside an offering for the needy on the first day of the week, on 
Sunday. So early Christians exercised their spiritual liberty to gather for worship on Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. As we can see from Colossians 2.16, Paul taught that Christians shouldn't give in to any criticism about this practice and others, and he actually wrote there in verse 16, so let no one judge you regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, end quote. And so we see from the writings of early church leaders like Barnabas around 100 AD, Ignatius around 107, Justin Martyr around 145, and Irenaeus around 155 that Christians chose Sunday as their day of rest and worship, a practice that we still follow today. And I'm glad we do. How I love to gather each Sunday with my brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Adam, he is risen. Mm-hmm. He is he risen. Is risen indeed. indeed. Yes. Um, thirdly, while in Miletus, Paul sends word to the elders of the church in nearby Ephesus that he'd like to see them. So they readily make the 45-mile trip to reconnect with their faithful teacher and friend. The Lord had made it clear to Paul that chains and tribulations, verse 23, awaited him, and perhaps a fate even worse than that. In fact, Paul seems resigned to the reality that he'll never see these men from Ephesus, with which he'd spent so many years teaching and uh, leading and perhaps struggling and crying. In verse 25, he mentions that he's probably never going to see them again. And so he doesn't want to miss this last opportunity to encourage them, which is ironic, despite his own heavy heart at what he's learned is going to happen to him. And so here's what I take from this. You know, perhaps, perhaps you're facing a soon separation from those you love. Perhaps you know with bittersweet clarity that your days on this side of heaven are coming to a close. You know, any attempt on my part to encourage you might hit you as hollow or disconnected, for I certainly don't know what you're feeling. But perhaps Paul's words will be the comfort you need today. In verse 24, he says, I don't count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. And so to that, I'll simply add these final words of Paul from verse 32, which he says, So now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. So finish strong, I would say to you, my friend. Finish strong and finish with joy. Finally, let me take... Paul's last two stops together, they work together in the point that I want to make next. In Tyre, the believers told Paul in chapter 21 and verse 4, they said that he was not to go up to Jerusalem, for Paul had planned to deliver to the poor there an offering that he had been collecting in all the churches he'd visited on his missionary, on this third missionary journey. And then likewise, in Caesarea, a prophet named Agabus warned Paul of the danger awaiting him in Jerusalem if he went there. 
prompting Paul to say in verse 13, I am ready to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, many Bible teachers have suggested that Paul was wrong to dismiss these warnings as he did, for Luke notes quite clearly that both warnings came from the leading of the Holy Spirit. You can see that in verse 4 and in verse 11. And if so, then it follows that even godly men sometimes move outside the desired will of God for them. You know, and if true that Paul did did disobey the Lord here, you wouldn't dismiss all that Paul had done for the Lord just because of this one failure on his part. So my point to you then is that likewise, don't be too hasty to judge those around you like your, I don't know, your godly mom, your pastor, or your best friend for one indiscretion or, or one clear failure of Scripture. But even if we can say that Paul disobeyed the Lord in this matter, and you should know that there are counter arguments to be sure, I think I just kind of fell in love with verse 11 because notice the encouraging words of the Lord to Paul there upon his arrival to Jerusalem, in which the Lord said to him, Be of good cheer, Paul. Be of good cheer. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. What? An amazing man. What an amazing journey. And then what an amazing God, I can say, that we serve. Well, it's time to return to our trivia question. Earlier, I asked you to take a shot at which one of the following songs does not have a Jewish songwriter or composer. Here they are again, A, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, 1908, B, God Bless America, 1939, C, Over the Rainbow, 1939, D, White Christmas in 1942, and E, This Land is Your Land in 1944. What do you think, Adam? I'm just going to take a wild guess because I don't know (laughs) this one. Um, I, I think I have leanings towards some that I think at some time I might have heard have Jewish composers, okay. but again, I'm not sure. I'm just going to, I'm just going to guess the fifth one. This land is your land. E. Okay. So you've already promised us that you won't sing any of these songs for us or you. I would that. never okay. do that to our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> but I think maybe our listeners can hum the tune for us to this land is your land written by Woody Guthrie. He was an Oklahoma boy, by the way, uh, reading about him here recently. Uh, he, I learned that he was known for his communist leanings, but, oh my, uh, okay. but thoroughly secular as far as I can tell. So yes, you are right again, All my right, friend. Yes. It is This Land <laughs> is Your Land by Woody Guthrie. So Take Me Out to the Ball Game was composed by Albert von Tilzer, the son of Polish Jewish immigrants to the U.S. God Bless America was written by Irving Berlin, mm-hmm. born... Israel Balin in the Russian Empire, and he also wrote White Christmas, by the way. And then Over the Rainbow was composed by Harold Arlen, the son of a Jewish cantor in Buffalo, New York. I haven't kept track, Adam, so how have you been doing? You've gotten several in a row here? I've gotten two in a row, I know that. I think uh, I I missed the one about 
Baloo from uh, the Jungle Book. <laughs> yes, but I was a little tricky on that one. So. That was tricky. <laughs> yes, I did kind of. Yeah, I got the last you two in with that one. <laughs> All right. Well, we're glad you've joined us today for the podcast. Um, but podcasts aren't the only thing we do here at Shalom Y'all Ministries. As you may know by now, we teach seminars and online Bible studies. We lead tours to Israel, present Christ-centered seders. Uh, we most recently maintain a YouTube channel. We post daily to Facebook, including pictures, articles, and trivia. And we also publish what we call our weekly, which goes out every Saturday to approximately 230 email subscribers. That's um, also when you can see um, the mission that we have and our prayer. And I always include those there for people to become more familiar with our ministry. But the weekly includes the previous week's Facebook posts and so much more. And if you'd like to subscribe to our weekly, simply send us an email at Shalom Y'all Ministries, no apostrophes, no spaces, Shalom Y'all Ministries at gmail.com. Adam? Well, we do hope that you've enjoyed this look into Paul's third missionary journey. Consider his love for the churches that he planted and, and for the people's sanctification in the Lord. May we all, like Paul, devote our lives to the building up of the body of Christ. Shalom, y'all. Shalom, y'all.